Second Samuel chapter 11 is one of the better known passages in the Old Testament with David and Bathsheba and Uriah. And it is a chapter that if you've spent time in, um, the right response coming out of it is repentance on your face, crying out to God for mercy upon your soul because you will see that your sin runs as deep as David's sin. When um, Joshua asked me about the preaching of this, he said, are you going to do chapter 12 too? And I said, no, he goes, you have to do chapter 12 with chapter 11. And I lovingly said, you know what, when you're preaching, you can do chapter 12 with chapter 11, but I'm doing chapter 11. I can barely get this in. It's so big. But I understand what he was saying because we get the response and we get the hope because we end in verse 27 with a most terrifying statement that God is displeased in his eyes with the work of David. And so by God's grace, I want us to hear this chapter as it was given. I want you to hear it with great fear and trembling. And I don't want to, I don't want to minimize the terror that this should strike in our hearts. I don't want to do that. I don't want to take away the hope we have in Christ, but I don't want to diminish the power of sin in our lives that's left unchecked. And so by God's grace, you won't do that in your mind. You won't try to wiggle out of it. Let the full weight of this chapter come upon you this morning. Um, If it does, I pray it will have the same effect that it had upon me this week, which was much repentance and much weeping. Okay. All right. So at the end of chapter 10, we, we find David and Israel in this, they're in a sweet spot. Um, they are, they've come to this place where David is the anointed king and he's ruling over, the, over all the tribes, all 12 tribes. And he's ruling faithfully. We were told in chapter 8, verse 15, that he was doing what was just and right for all his people. So he was ruling as a godly king. We know that Jerusalem was now established as the capital city and all the enemies on all sides, we saw that north, south, east, and west, they had been subdued so there was peace in the land. We know that. We know that the Ark of the Covenant had been brought up and is now in the city and is now dwelling, God is now dwelling in the midst of his people. And the blessings are coming from that. And we know that even David is extending a gospel-like grace to his enemies. We saw that with Mishabosheth in chapter 9. And we saw that with, uh, with King Hanan of the Ammonites in chapter 10. And so we get to, we get to chapter 11 and to the end of chapter 10, the beginning of chapter 11, and if the story could just stop right there, it's good. I mean, it's a good place to stop. And you could say that, you know, uh, God established his people, he was reigning with his people, he was blessing his people, and the people lived happily ever after. But that's not how the story ends. Not for David, and not for Israel, and not for us. Instead, we move into chapter 11 with Israel and David at this pinnacle of God's blessing and the exercising of obedience and faith. And in one chapter, everything comes unraveled. In rapid succession, as we will see, David engages in a progression of sin that even in our corrupt legal system, he would have been found guilty and sentenced to death here. Now, there are several ways you can approach this text. 
Uh, more oftentimes than not, when I, when I hear it preached or I, I've heard it taught, they take an ethical perspective and they will, talk about, they will talk about idleness or they'll talk about lust or they'll talk about adultery or deception or murder. And all those things are in this chapter. And, and we're going to have to touch on them a bit. But that's not why this chapter is in the book. It's not to address any of these particular moral failures. This chapter is in the book not to shame David, not to air his dirty laundry. This chapter is in the book that we might see how dark our hearts, even in our saved states, really are. How, how deep sin runs. How dangerous it is, it is left unchecked. And how desperately, how desperately we need Christ. We need a Savior. It magnifies those things in catastrophic fashion. I, I don't want this morning, I don't want you thinking about sin in the context of Satan. I don't want you thinking of sin in the context of the dominions of darkness or the world. I want you to be thinking about sin in the context of your heart. I want you to think about the progression of sin and your rebellion in the context of our fallen nature. The mess that's made here And the mess that we make is our doing. So by God's grace, with your help this morning, we will hear this rightly. I want to show you three things, three essential things that came upon me that I want to come upon you. One is the progression of sin, the slippery slope of sin, and it just moves. Two, I want to show you the power of sin. And three, I want to show you the need for Christ. Once I get through the second point, I could probably drop the third because you're going to say, I'm I'm in desperate need, which is exactly where Christ wants us to be. So let's look at the first point, the progression of sin, the slippery slope of sin. I want want to walk through this story. This is not a story you want to be left untold. So I want to walk through this, and I want you to see how dangerous it is when sin is not repented over rightly and how it moves rapidly. I want you to be struck by, struck by the power that sin can have over someone, an anointed man like David, to not only bring um, ill repute upon him and his family, the nation, but against God himself. I want you to see how the sin here progressed from idleness and lust to adultery, to deception, and to mass murder. All in less than a year. So let's, let's begin. Look at verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rehoboth. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. So the author wants us to know David is in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong heart. He's not where he should be. This was the springtime. This was the time when war would start up again after the winter. This was the time when kings would go out with their armies. David was at home in the palace when he should have been out on the battlefield with his troops. In fact, we're told that 
He arises from his couch. That can also be translated bed in the afternoon. So not only was he not out with his troops, he's sleeping in the afternoon. And he wakes up. And he's, he's sauntering about and walking about on his rooftop. Idle hands. And he sees a woman bathing. And it's important. The text tells us that she is beautiful because her beauty has a major piece of this problem. The sin of idleness. Not engaging in the work of the Lord progresses to lust. Look at, look at verse 3. David sent and inquired about the woman. This is the woman that he saw that he thought was beautiful. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? The answer is yes, it was. This information alone should have stopped David cold at that moment. No further response But David was already swimming in the deep end of the pool of sin. He was already out in deep waters. And so this information had no impact on him. He heard it with deaf ears. So rather than turning his eyes away from a woman that did not belong to him, he lusted after her. He desired her. And because he was king, he had the power to take her. He had made up his mind, and the words of our Lord in Matthew 5 should ring in our ears when Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So did David that moment. You say, When did he sin? When he lusted for her, he committed adultery. The consummation of the act was a foregone conclusion. This is when it happened. The sin gains momentum in his heart. She was married to not only Uriah, but Uriah was one of David's mighty men, one of his 30 most elite men. Had no impact on him. It was insufficient to stop the movement. Look at verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, uncleanness, Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. The the, the Hebrew writer intentionally condenses this entire horrific incident into two verses. And the verbs, it's, it's it's not by chance. All the verbs are very direct and they're very sharp. David sent. She came. David slept. She sent her away. Leviticus chapter 15, she was just finished with a purification process after her menstrual cycle. And so now she is defiled. Defiled by the king, defiled by by David. She is consumed. Because that's what sin does. Sin doesn't give life, it consumes, it destroys. She was treated as something rather than someone. David took her. David devoured her, and then David spit her out as though she were worthless. There's a problem, though. The Bible says she was created in the image of God. Now, David's hidden sin to consume Bathsheba and send her away is foiled by a simple problem. She's pregnant. She sends word to the king, I am pregnant. And then in verse 5, it's so amazing here, the author again wants us to see how dehumanized Bathsheba is. He doesn't even say Bathsheba, he says, the woman conceived, the thing conceived. 
So what happened in secret secret's about to go public. And so David quickly has to come up with a plan B. And he does. He acts. Look at verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Uriah is Bathsheba's husband. Send him to me. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Have you ever noticed how sin loves to engage in small talk before it begins to devour? David wasn't concerned about this at this point in time. He had Uriah there to manipulate Uriah. Look at verse 8. And then then David said to Uriah, once all the small talk was done, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and he did not go down to his house. Now, when a soldier was out at war, they were abstinent. It was part of the duty. And so David fully expected him to go home to, to rest, to have his feet washed, and to enjoy his wife. He does not do that. Instead, he stays with the servants in the palace. And you say, well, why would he do that? Why would he disobey this king? It is disobedient. David gave him direct orders and a gift to take to Bathsheba. You know what David's doing. He's manipulating the whole situation. He's trying to work it out with more sin. Uriah's response is nothing short of extraordinary. Look at verse 10. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, that was David's plan. When Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. Those are tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives? I will not do such thing. Uriah's nobility and character are in direct contrast to the character and wickedness of the king. I mean, how convicting this must have been for David. Uriah is a Hittite. He's not even a native-born Israelite. And yet the first reason he gives, he says, the ark and Israel are Judah, they're intense. Am I going to go home and enjoy the comforts of my home and the comforts of my wife when the ark and God and his people and you, our king, are not? Out of his love and respect for God, Uriah said, no, I will not do that. I will not do that. Not even a single night. His defiance is extraordinary. As you live and as your soul lives, speaking to David, he said, I will not do this thing. And so not only does he foil David's plan, David needed him to go home and to lay with his wife so when the baby is born, everybody will think it's Uriah's. That's the plan. It's foiled now. Three times in the text, we're told Uriah did not go home. Uriah did not go home. But I think even more important, the the character of David was convicted here and should have been. He's rebuked, albeit unknowingly by Uriah. He's rebuked. His slothfulness, his, his, his lusting, and then his adultery is rebuked by Uriah's character. So David's frustrated. Plan C, he tries to get Uriah drunk. 
he goes for another spirit, inebriation. He thinks, if I get Uriah drunk, then he'll go home to Bathsheba. Look at verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. This is amazing. I mean, here, here this is, he has already consumed this man's wife. And now he has him at his table getting him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch. This is Uriah with the servants of his Lord. But he did not go down to his house. Even, even in his drunken state, Uriah has more character and integrity than the king. Even drunk. David thought, if this man gets drunk, certainly he'll go. Bathsheba's a beautiful woman. David must have been thinking, I was sober and I couldn't keep my hands off her. So Uriah will go. But not even alcohol had the ability to detour this man's allegiance from God, his men, or the king. And so we see in David this dereliction of duty which led to lust, which led to adultery, which led to deception, manipulation. I think Sir Walter Scott said it well when he said, oh my, what a tangled web we weave. If Uriah was not going to be the father in disguise of this child, then David would be. And there were sufficient people to know. Bathsheba knew, the servants knew. And so the only other option was to kill Uriah. Eliminate him. Plan D. Look at verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. And so David calls upon Joab to be his co-conspirator. And Joab would be a co-conspirator well in this because Joab was a murderer also. Remember, he took Abner's life. So this was a good man to call upon. Joab concedes. He has another another plan that he manipulates. But the bottom line is Uriah is put to death. And so we're told in verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. Verse 27 And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And you say, well, end of story. The sin is now complete. It's run its full course. David, by not meditating upon the word of God, by not worshiping God, by not loving God rightly, found himself in a place at a time with a wrong heart and wrong motives that led to idleness, that led to lust, that led to adultery, that led to deception, that led to murder. David was quick to forget the laws of God. David was quick to neglect his duties as a king by not going out to war.
You cannot hear this and say, shame on you, David. This is us. David allowed a lack of reverence for God, a lack of worship of God, a lack of submission to God to move into sins that seemed relatively small at first, but they progressed in rapid fashion to death. And that's how it starts for most of us. You know, we talk about stumbling and falling into sin. Most of us don't stumble and fall into sin. Most of us slip into it. We slide into it. It starts like this. It starts with something as as simple as we would say it's idleness. And then because we're being idle, we, we then move to things like lust. And because we're engaged in lust, we then move to things like adultery. And then from adultery comes deception. And then deception into murder. And that's how it goes. I don't, I don't know, I can't think of a time as a pastor in, in helping someone work through a sin that they were fine one day and they're catastrophically destroyed and sin the next. It doesn't work like that. It comes in slowly. Satan knows that. The dominions of darkness know that. Our flesh, wants to, our flesh won't just go, okay, today I'm fine, tomorrow I commit murder. No, today I'm faithful and, and tomorrow I'll be idle. And today I'm idle, and tomorrow I'll lust. Tomorrow I'll lust, and then I'll commit adultery. This slippery slope, I think, reveals most of our lives. If we're to be honest, it certainly did David. David sinned against God. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against his kingdom. He sinned against his own people. And what was the end? It was death. It is always death. The progression of sin always ends in death. That is the end of the story every time. There's no director's cut. There's no alternative ending. Sin always ends in death. So on this first point, I want you to see. I want you to see the progression of sin. This is how it works. How it played out in David's life is how it plays out in our lives. Sin left unchecked, sin left unrepented over. Regardless of how small you think that sin is, you leave it there, you leave it there. And it will progress into a nightmare like this. The seeds of sin sown in our heart end in death, they end in murder. And the wake of destruction they leave in their path is unbearable. So if you, if, you, if you have heard this story before and you think to yourself, I am immune to that. I know the gospel, so did David. I know Christ, so did David. I know the word of God, so did David. I would argue far better than most of us. So for a minute, you think that you're immune to these atrocious behaviors and you think, I, I might sin, but I'd never do that. Then we got to hear our next point with all our might. The power of sin. In James chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. It's got to come back on us. Ready? Verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is exactly what happened with David. And I have no doubt that when James was writing this, he was thinking of David. We cannot blame this horrible progression of sin from idleness to lust to adultery to deception to death. We cannot blame this on God. We cannot blame it on Satan. We can't blame it on David's circumstances either. David allowed himself to be lured and enticed by his own desires. He put himself in that situation. And this is how powerful sin is, my beloved. And this is what we must hear today. If sin is left unchecked in your life, when I mean unchecked, unrepented over, and when I say unrepented over, I mean not turned from. I'm not saying, Lord, please forgive me for this sin and I'm going to do it again tomorrow. I mean repenting, which is turning, which is hating the sin and turning to Christ. Those sins left unchecked, they will end just as it ends here. Paul said, no temptation has overcome you except what is common to mankind. So do not put yourself on a pedestal and say, no one knows my temptations. Everyone knows your temptations. Everyone knows these struggles. This is common to man. Hear the apostle when he said, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure under it. You know what that means? Every temptation... Every time you see, man, that beautiful woman that you want to lust, every time, woman, you see that article that you want to consume, every time, son or daughter, you, you want to rebel against your parents, every single time, God says, here's a way out. Every time. We can never say, the devil made me do it. Listen, the devil's going to have enough stuff on his plate as it is when he comes before a holy God. One thing will not be making you to sin. He, has not, he does not have that power. We cannot blame it upon God because God doesn't even tempt someone to sin. We cannot blame it upon our circumstances. We can't say the world is so dark in the media. No. The fault is our own. It is our own hearts. We know this. This is the very cold and very difficult truth that we must hear that all sin, big or small, starts in our own heart. That's where it starts. Our sins are fantastic factories able to produce sins of all kinds on an unprecedented scale. Negligence, slothfulness, lust, adultery, deception, and murder, just to name a few. God desperately wants us to see clearly in the life of David how dangerous and powerful sin is. This is David. This is God's anointed. This is the one who has become king. This is the one who has received blessing upon blessing. And yet, look at what happened. 
He engages in sin with reckless abandon. And until we get to chapter uh, 12, there's not even a sense of conviction or remorse. He's moving through this systematically, destroying lives, destroying marriages, and his own kingdom, even though he doesn't know it yet. How quickly he slipped. This is the same king in chapters 9 and 10 who's extending gospel grace to his enemies. Same king. And then we find him in chapter 11. Instead of being driven by that said covenant love, he's driven by eros. He's driven by fleshly passions and fleshly desires to take, to have, to consume, and to spit out. That's what Satan does. That's what sin does. One of the things, there are a few things I want to draw from this that are very practical for us, so listen closely. David neglected to guard himself the power of sin by becoming idle. Now, idleness doesn't really really rise up to the sin of adultery. It doesn't rise up to the sin of deception and murder. But look where it started. By neglecting his role as king to go out with his men, he found himself idle. Look at verse 2 again. One evening, David got up from his bed. He's sleeping late. And he walked around on the roof of the palace. He walks around doing what? He's idle, doing nothing, not serving God. I like what Matthew Henry said about this verse. He said, standing waters gather filth. The bed of the sloth often proves to be the bed of lust. Wow. How desperately we need to hear that today. Standing waters gather filth. You know, my grandmother, who was not a believer, used to say to me, not a believer, she would always say, idle hands of the devil's workshop. And I'd say, I have no idea what that means. But I know what that means. This idleness, this not doing our duty, not doing our ministry. God has called and equipped each and every one of his children to serve, to minister as husbands and wives, as parents, as teachers, as workers, as ministry leaders in the church, as workers. There's work for us to be done. And when we're not doing that work, that means that your eyes and your ears and your hands and your feet are in the wrong place. If you're not out on the battlefield where you're supposed to be, then you're on the top of the palace and you're looking around. And to some degree, You've lost the protection of God. You're in the wrong place, the wrong time, with the wrong mind. David literally took off the metaphorical Ephesians 6 armor of God. He literally took it off and did not go into battle. And I dare say he left himself exposed to a far greater enemy than the Ammonites. He left himself exposed to sin and temptation. I believe David also neglected to guard himself against the power of sin by guarding his physical senses, by guarding his eyes and guarding his ears. We're told, look again, he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now, rather than seeing her and being tempted and turning away, 
which he had the power to do according to Paul in Corinthians? He saw her and he did what? He considered her beauty. He considered her beauty, not in a beautiful way. He was not saying, there is a woman created in the image of God, glorious creation. He considered her beauty in a sensual way, with his senses, with his eyes. God loves beauty. God hates the sensual. The sin here was not her beauty, nor was it David seeing her beauty. The sin here is what David did with her beauty in his mind. It's what he did with her beauty in his eyes. He made her a sensational object instead of a person created in the image of God. He had a vision that was pornographic. This was pornography of the mind that led to the sin of him not being satisfied with merely looking He wanted to have her. He wanted to consume her. And because he was king, he could and he did. Remember our Lord's words in Luke 11, 34? If you didn't believe them then, believe them now. He says, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your whole body is full of darkness David filled himself with darkness. He filled himself with the beauty of Bathsheba and then consumed her before he ever laid hands on her. This is the opposite of God's will. We know this. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he said, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should be made holy, that you should avoid sexual immorality, the very thing that David is doing, God said, do not do. Listen to this, 1 Thessalonians 4.4. Each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans. David is acting and living like a pagan, like the pagans who do not know God. And then he says in verse 6, the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. And he's talking about his own children. We'll talk about that more next week. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. David did not guard his idleness. He did not guard his senses. David did not, I do not believe that David rightly understood the perpetual nature of sin and how it is that slippery slope that leads to death. I don't believe he, he in that moment, we know he does afterwards because he wrote the 51st Psalm, but not now. David did not wake up that day and say, my idleness will turn to lust, and my lust will turn to adultery, and my adultery will turn to a pregnancy unwanted, and then I will engage in deception, and then I will engage in murder. I've never met anybody that thinks like that. And yet that's exactly how it goes. Every step of the way, sin begot more sin, which begot more sin. If sin is not confessed, my beloved, we all know this term, all of the people that are techie, it goes viral. If sin is not turned from, it goes viral. David was king, and he thought he was in control, but he was a slave to his own fleshly desires. 
This king had surrendered his crown and become a slave to his own sin and was submitting to it. There are so many, there are so many other things here that maybe we'll draw out on Wednesday night, but I, I do believe that the greatest mistake that was made by David, the one that really started this whole movement long before any actual sin was committed in the context of Bathsheba or Uriah, I believe it was pride. I believe it was pride. You say, well, of course, you always go back to pride. Look, ever since David was successful in bringing the ark up from Ballet Judah, ever from that point to chapter 11, everything was working for David. Everything. The ark comes into the people of Israel. All the enemies are, are defeated and subdued. God is blessing. There's gold and silver coming into the coffers. Everything is working out for David. Unprecedented success in David's life. And without him daily reminding himself that God was the one doing all the work, which is true, and without David daily reminding himself that it was God who he was to worship and God who he was to pray to and the word of God he was to meditate on day and night as he himself later says, without that happening daily, without him singing from the 51st Psalm before the adultery and the murder, he should have been singing this, O God of my salvation, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, listen to this, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Those are David's words. But grievously, those were written after the adultery and after the murder. Had David been singing this song, on the morning that he woke up, before the idolatry, before the lust, maybe it would have been a very different story for David. If God is not recognized and worshiped daily in our lives, daily, listen, especially in the midst of great success, when everything in your life seems to be going well, if God is not worshiped daily, if we do not go to him daily, to hear him speak to us in his word daily, to pray to him daily, to confess our sins daily, this is what happens. This progression. Pride and self-importance and a lack of calling out for the mercy of God. When the messenger told David, that's Uriah's wife, David should have stopped. But his pride said, it doesn't matter. After David finds out that she's pregnant, instead of confessing to God and contacting Uriah and said, I've committed an evil sin against you, he tries, his prideful heart says, I can, I can work this out. I can manipulate Uriah. Just bring him to the palace. We'll cover it up. Once Uriah foils that plan, David's prideful heart assumes the throne of God and says, very well, I will just take his life. I will execute him. Even upon receiving the news of the troops here, at the very end of the chapter, Joab had a different plan on how Uriah was going to be executed. He sent him up near the city walls, and many 
of David's men were lost. And David hated that in previous battles, but not here. Even in this moment, his arrogant, prideful heart dismisses the loss of his own men. Look at verse 25. He tells the messenger to go back to Joab, and thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. His own men caught up in his own sin, leading to their death. And he says, do not let this matter displease you. How powerful is sin? David's pride left, left, left to, it led to the death of Bathsheba's marriage, her husband, her purity. It led to the death of David's mighty men. It led to the death of Uriah. It led to the death of his reputation amongst his people. It was a violation of God's law. It was a violation of God's kingdom. It was a violation of the instructions God had given to David and how he was to be his king. It was a violation of the covenant that God had just reaffirmed with David in chapter 7. David sent his men out to battle the Ammonites. And while they were away at war, he had declared war on his own people. He had declared war on his own kingdom, on God's kingdom. And and we sit and we say, well, what a fool, David. Why would you do that? We need to ask ourselves the same question. Every single time we sin, without exception, regardless of how small you think that sin is, every single time we sin, we are in violation of God's law, We are declaring war upon God's people, God's kingdom, God's son. Like David, we are breaking the covenant that God has made with us in Christ. Every time we sin, every time we sin, we say we will not submit to you. The viral progression of sin is real. The power of sin in the life of the believer, I would say for most of us, and certainly in the church today, is grotesquely misunderstood. Real power to destroy your life, and your family, and all those who are around you. And if you do not believe that to be true, then you're already down a very, very dangerous road. So first we see the progression of sin. Secondly, we see the power of sin even amongst some of the most sanctified of men, even amongst God's anointed. Now with these two truths in mind, if you hear rightly that this sin is wickedly progressive going from smaller sins to death, And if you hear me say rightly, according to the word of God, that there's real power in sin to destroy lives, then the right response is, what do we do with this? How do I end up not like David? Is it possible? I believe so. Let's look at our third point, our desperate need for Christ. My beloved, I love the church, I do but there is such a desperate need in the Western church to have an understanding of the power of sin and the darkness in our own hearts. I try to listen to sermons throughout the week from other pastors of their churches. There's so much ethical teaching without the fear of the Lord. 
What good does it do for a pastor to tell a husband how to be a good husband to his wife when there's no fear of God? What good does it do to say to someone like David, David, you ought not take Uriah's wife when there's no fear of the Lord? What good do any of these sermons do if we don't have a desperate need for Christ to not only save us, but empower us not to live these wicked lives? The church today is lacking a biblical understanding of the very real darkness that dwells in each of us. In each of us. It's not just the unsaved. You think, I I know who you're talking about, Pastor. I'm talking about me. I'm talking about you. How many professing Christians have read or have heard 2 Samuel 11 preached and thought to themselves, I would never do something like that. How many of you, when you read that, you, you, became, you, you, you became Uriah, right? Because, of course, we're all Uriahs. Uriah has the beautiful character in the story, and none of us are like David, but we all know Davids. We all can point out the Davids in our lives. If you think to yourself you would never do something like that, or you think to yourself, how could David have been so wicked? Ugh. Disgusting, immoral. Yes. You say to yourself, I might lust, but I'd never actually commit adultery. I may engage in deception and anger, but I I would never kill somebody. You just haven't been given the opportunity yet. Or maybe you have, but you're afraid of other things, not necessarily God. Maybe it's getting caught, maybe it's going to jail. Maybe it's having a divorce in your family. My beloved, if you have this mindset toward the text, then you have already taken that first or second or third step down that slippery slope of death. You're already down it. You're already down it. This is the same David who took Meshubosheth and put him at his table. Same David, who in a matter of months put Uriah in a grave. Same David. The same David we looked at in chapter 8, 9, and 10 and said, glorious, amazing, look what God is doing. The same David that then killed Uriah and his own men. All in about nine months, ten months. How is this possible? You say, how, how is this possible? How could David do that? We must believe what Jeremiah said. The heart of man is what? It is deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can understand it? Only God can understand it, but I think it would be wise for us to try our best to understand it, how dark our hearts really are, I mean really are, We need so much more confessions today. We must try to understand it because the heart is the problem. My heart is the problem. Your heart is the problem. Robert Murray McShane, he was the pastor of the Church of Scotland in the early part of the 19th century for a very short period of time. One morning in teaching on sin, 
he said this to his congregants. He said, if all your thoughts were exposed to public view this morning, this church gathering would look more like a house of hell than a house of God. Do you believe that to be true? If we just took all of our thoughts... I mean, they do this in the corporate world, right? You guys, I don't know what you call it now. It used to be called brainstorming. And you, you took whiteboards. And I said, all right, let's take all of our thoughts and place them upon the whiteboard. How many of you would be raising your hands? How many of you would run out those doors? Maybe you would grab the marker. Maybe you'd tear down the whiteboard. Because truth be told... If all of our thoughts, if all of our deeds, if all of our words were exposed to the public as David's were, I, I agree with McShane that we would look more like a house of hell than a house of God. We must never, ever dismiss or downplay the power of sin to destroy. The story of David's fall I believe, saints, it reveals just how plainly and, more, and vulnerable we are. We are. 1 Corinthians 10. Again, Paul said these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. What took place with David that was recorded in the Bible is for us to know so why. So if you think you're standing firm... Paul says what? Be careful lest you fall. Watch out. Beware. It's an extreme word in the Greek. It's saying you've got to be on guard. You've got to be careful every day. Every day, pastor? Yes, every moment of every day. You must be on guard, watchful, aware, sharp. Lest you become idle and engage in lust. We must be careful because we love Christ and we don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. We must be careful because what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, it applies to us as the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. What such sins? Adultery, sexual immorality, deception, hatred, murder. We are are so fixed as a culture and as a church on knowledge and information That we foolishly believe that if we know what is right, we'll do what's right. And if we know what's wrong, we won't do what's wrong. I mean, this is why why your tax dollars, millions of dollars are spent to to promulgate these educational campaigns by like the Ed Council. Thinking if we can just know truth, we will submit to it. But the problem of overcoming sin has never been a problem of knowledge It's always been a problem of slavery and power. How many sins did you commit this last week that you say, oh, I didn't know I was supposed to do that? We know that. I can't think of the last sin that I've confessed to God. I go, I didn't know that, God. That's a new one to me. Simply because we know better does not mean we will do better. Paul made this clear, Romans chapter 1, he said, of mankind they are without excuse. Why? Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. David knew better. 
David knew he was supposed to be out to war. David knew that his lustful thoughts were wrong. David knew that when he took Bathsheba and consumed her, it was adultery. David knew he was trying to manipulate Uriah. He knew this. David knew, my beloved, that he was trying to kill a man unjustly. David knew God's law. And so David's problem was not a lack of knowledge, and nor is ours. Our problem, like David's, is a lack of power or a lack of perception of power. Gordon Getty, in his commentary on this, it's, it's written beautifully, and that's why I want to read it to you, but it's also pointed. He says this, The truth is that the pallid righteousness of half-persuaded minds, all our knowledge... The truth is that the pallid righteousness of half-persuaded minds falls rather easily before the overwhelming force of unhallowed desires and passions. No match. Knowledge is no match for the flesh. And then he says, listen closely, always and exclusively, it is a humble, prayerful, and faithful dependence upon the Lord and His power to sustain us, which will see us through to victory over the power seductiveness of temptation and unholy desires. Rather than knowledge helping David, I realized as I studied this that the, 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 the further he went down this path, even though he knew it was wrong to go down this path, the, the, the tighter that spiral got for him. It was a dead man's spiral. And the truth is, with David, and I believe with us, I think we're more concerned about our perception of righteousness than we are actual righteousness in our own lives. We're more concerned with what people think about us in our righteousness than we are with actually living out righteous lives. And this is why the sin perpetuates. In David's situation with Bathsheba, unless confessed and turned from, what did his sins do? His sins led to greater sins. Why? He had to continue the facade. He had to continue the cover-up. He had to find a means by which to get out of this mess he was making. And the bigger mess that he made, the harder he tried to cover it up. He added layer upon layer upon sin. And the more he sinned, the more he was enslaved to it. All in an effort to hide the image he wanted to perpetuate maybe before himself, maybe before his people. I mean, he's the anointed of God. He has to look a particular way. The more we try to cover up sin without the blood of Christ, the more we try to to overcome our sin with more sin, instead of fighting against it, the more we enter this deathly trap. And it is a trap. I don't think it's mildly ironic that the degree to which David went to to cover up his sin with Bathsheba has become one of the best-known stories in the entire Bible. I don't think it's mildly ironic. I think it's providential. Look how hard he worked to cover this whole thing up. And you talk to people outside the church about David and Bathsheba. Oh, I know that story. I know that story. He tried to hide it, and everybody knows. So too with us, saints. Whatever we try to hide, whatever we hide now, remember, we come before God on that day, on that great, awful day of judgment, as we had a chance to sing, all the books will be opened. Every single word, 
Every single thought, every single action will be laid bare before all mankind, all the angels, all creation, and most importantly, God himself. I can't even say that without part of me just shaking and wanting to hide. We know that's true. You say, well, David got caught. David's exposed. So are we. We hide nothing from God. We hide nothing, thankfully. So rather, my beloved, rather you reading this and condemning David or justifying your own self-righteousness, rather than looking down at David, the only right response to this is to run to Christ. It's to run to the cross it's to run to the old rugged cross and not just cleave, but I would recommend you dig your nails into that cross as hard as you can and hold on with all your might. Paul understood this. The Apostle Paul, the great Saint Paul, he ran to Christ. One of my favorite chapters in the New Testament, the book of Romans, chapter 7. Paul describes my daily existence. He says, I know the good itself does not, he says, I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire, listen saints, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And then he says in verse 24, oh, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Who? You don't skip verse 25. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know why Christ, what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Do you know why? Because he got it. He knows absolutely how wretched and dark he is, and he knows it's only the gospel of grace, it's only the power of God through Christ, that there's any hope, one, of salvation, and two, of living a holy life now. That's why. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because to him, it was glorious to his ears. He says, not only will this wretched man be saved from an eternal damnation in hell, but Christ will empower me to live now a holy life. And that's what we must hear as a church. I know most of you have great hope in the gospel saving you. But do you have hope now in the power now to change us as a people, as a church, as, as an area in San Jose, as churches in San Jose? We run to the cross because at the cross there was the death and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in him... In his death, and his resurrection, when he bore our sins in his flesh upon that cross, when he did that great work, he said, listen, wretched man, listen, wretched woman, you come to me, you come to me, and not only will I save you for eternity, but I will impart to you my righteousness, I'll give to you my Holy Spirit, so that you can wake up tomorrow, not idle, not lustful, not as an adulterer, not as a murderer, but you can get up tomorrow by the power of my Holy Spirit, and you can be a saint and you can live as a saint. Do you believe that? I don't, I don't know that we believe that today. Because if we did, we'd be confessing our sins more and we'd be striving for righteousness, not in our own power. The flesh has no power for holiness. But the Holy Spirit does. Bringing great conviction and great power
Paul said in Romans chapter 3, the wages of sin is death. Sin must always end in death without exception. Every sin must end in death. And that means, my beloved, if you live this life and you go to your grave with your sins, you will die eternally. You will be condemned forever to hell. But if you go to your grave covered by the blood of Christ, then he takes that. He, the sin still ends in death, the death of Christ, but not the death of you. That is the glorious good news. That Christ dies so that you can live. That Christ dies to impart his righteousness to you so that in this state right now, for whatever time God gives you, we don't have to muddle through this existence. I am so tired of hearing pastors talk about sin being pleasurable for a season. Sin should be repulsive to us. It should be like drinking vomit. If we have a right understanding of sin and a right understanding of the holiness of God and a right taste of the sweetness of the gospel of grace, we should hate sin with every fiber of our being. It's not pleasurable for a season. And rebuke that man that tells you that. It's hateful. It's hateful to God. It's hateful to his kingdom. It's hateful to your life. I hate my sin. I hate what it does to my family. We got to hate it more, saints. We got to press into Christ because he died to overcome it. He gave us the power to overcome it. Your love for Christ, Christ's love for you should bring you in and change your desires. I mean, just change them. You have a new heart. You've been born again. The old you is dead. Leave him dead. In Christ, your greater desire should be the work of God rather than idle hands should be in Christ. In Christ, if you are pursuing him and loving him, then the power of love will overcome the power of hatred. It will. We have that power in Christ. In Christ, the power of truth then can overcome the power of deception. The power of, of love for another will overcome the power of lust and adultery. The power of life will overcome the power of death and murder. And the power of humility will overcome the power of pride, which set this whole mess in motion for David. All that you have in Christ. Timothy said, second, I mean, Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has given, not given us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of what? Of power and love and discipline. To discipline our bodies. To discipline the flesh. Why? So that God doesn't have to discipline us. He will. He will. And in this God-given power, Jesus said, watch and pray. Watch and pray so you don't fall into temptation. Watch and pray. We need to watch and pray more. I know you're ready to close, so I will. When we end this storyline in chapter 11, God is strangely silent. 
isn't he? Awfully quiet for 26 verses. Almost seems as though he doesn't care. And then we hit verse 27. And that thought goes right out the window. Look at verse 27. When the morning of Uriah was over, David sent and brought Bathsheba to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. And you say, end of story, right? Wrong. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It's a horrible translation. I'll get to it in a minute. God's silence in the midst of our sin it's not meaning he's absent. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care. It doesn't mean that he is disinterested. David rightly said in the psalm, Psalm 11, verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them, us, you, and me. Go back to verse 25. In verse 25, regarding the death of his fallen men, David said to Joab, this is a literal translation, much better than what you have. It doesn't say displeased. It said, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes, Joab. Don't let the death of Uriah be evil in your eyes. Don't let the fall of your men be evil in your eyes. Don't let it. And the author is a play on words in the Hebrew. Because he ends in verse 27, and it literally says, the thing David had done was evil in Yahweh's eyes. David wants to wash the whole thing away. We're done now. Uriah's dead. It's over. Joab, do not let the thing be evil in your eyes. And then we hear in verse 27, God say, this is evil in my eyes, David. You can dismiss it. You can think it's over, but it's not over. David tries to downplay it, but it was evil to God. One commentator said this. He said, Yahweh may be silent, but he is not sightless. The thing David had done was evil in Yahweh's eyes. David may have Bathsheba's flesh and Uriah's blood, but he will have to face Yahweh's eyes. He may have Bathsheba's flesh and Uriah's blood, but David would have to face Yahweh's eyes. My beloved, if your first response to getting caught like David, getting ensnared in a sin, being worried about your reputation, and at all costs trying to fix that, or if you foolishly think, this would never happen to me, or if you foolishly think, I can just willfully engage in this sin and God will forgive me in Christ because that's what he's going to do. I don't have to live a holy life. If you think that you need not worry, I would suggest you start worrying now. Yahweh's eyes are upon us now. Yahweh's eyes are upon you in those moments when you think that no one else knows. Worry, lest you be enslaved to sin as David was. Instead of dismissing the danger of sin and the power of sin, I pray that you would fear God 
I pray that you would fear his punishment. I pray you would fear his discipline. I pray instead you would run to Christ and you would seek refuge in the Son. When you're tempted, beloved, run to Christ. That's the way out. When you've sinned, my beloved, run to Christ. He gives forgiveness. When you find yourself caught in this horrible cycle of trying to guard your reputation, stop and run to Christ and take his reputation, which is holiness, not deception. Go to Christ and be forgiven quickly. Regardless, my beloved, of how grievous your sins may be. If you've sinned against a brother or sister or someone outside the church, you need to go to that person. You need to seek forgiveness. Do that. If not, then you're just trying to hide your reputation. You're allowing sin to beget more sin. If you have a sin against God or multiple sins against God that you have yet to confess, confess them to God. Yahweh's eyes are displeased with unconfessed, unrepented sin. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. It's hard to lay yourself bare before the Lord. It's hard to lay yourself bare before people and say, this is how wretched I am. This is how wretched I am. But truth be told, when you confess your sin to someone, I mean, isn't it true that you could say, I got about 10, 20, 100 things worse than that? Isn't that the truth? I confessed, confessed a sin yesterday to a sister of mine. And I said, you know, I, I, I want you to forgive me. I need you to forgive me. She said, I forgive you. And I said, that's just, that's nothing, really. I know how dark my heart is. It almost seems trite at times. There's so much more. If you only knew. God knows. Charles Spurgeon said, Christian, what hast thou to do with sin? Hath it not cost thee enough already? Burnt child, will that play with fire again? What? When thou hast already been between the jaws of the lion, wilt thou step a second time into his den? Hast thou not had enough of the old serpent? I have, haven't you? Haven't you had enough of the old serpent? Aren't you tired of the cover-up? I want to do this. We're going to take communion. I'm going to have the men come up, and then we're just going to pass it out quietly. And while we do, saints, listen. This story of David is here to warn us that even those anointed by God, even those saved by grace, are in great danger of sin that is left unrepented over. So as as the men come forward and we distribute the bread that represents the broken body of Christ and the juice that represents his blood, as we do that, 
I, I, I want you to ask God to reveal your sin. Most of our sin we don't want to see. Ask him to take this time, this morning, to lay open what he already sees. And then the sins that you see today, repent of them. If there are people you need to talk to, talk to them. And then add another prayer to that. Ask God that this would be a continual daily movement to Him where you come before the Holy God and you say, Lord, open me up that I might see my transgressions against you. For I know, as David said, I have sinned against you and you alone. Show me. Show me all of them. And don't leave one out. You say, why do I feel so bound all the time? It's sin. Confess it. Turn from it. And be set free from it. And then do that again tomorrow. For the rest of your life. Forgive me if I have sounded too hard on this for your ears. God has made it crystal clear how dark my heart is. I don't believe it's just me. By his grace, we will all stop. We will ask him to show us the same thing. That we might be a holy people. I want to be a holy person. I want you to be a holy saint for God. We cannot do that in sin. We cannot What does darkness have to do with the light? Nothing. We must confess. We must turn. We must be a holy people.